Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Voices in Recovery is produced by Freedom's Path Recovery Society, a registered Canadian charity. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider a donation at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca. All donations go directly to assisting Freedom's Path in providing services free of charge and helps us keep the podcast going. We are grateful for any and all donations. This podcast discusses difficult topics such as childhood abuse, drug and alcohol use, sexuality, sexualized trauma, and more. If you are under the age of 18, please speak with your legal guardian prior to listening. The opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individual and not those of Voices in Recovery or Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chinookie. We acknowledge the Satina, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Thank you, Heather, and thank you, Tannis, for coming tonight. Uh, please, I open the floor to either one of you or both of you if you want to try and talk at the same time. We can see how that goes, too. <laughs> <laughs> one, two, three, on your marks, get set, go! <laughs> well, thanks for having us here. This is awesome. Um, Our pleasure. My life revolves around recovery now, and mm. it has since I got sober July 3rd, 2011. And... It's a blessing in the end. There's just no question that recovery has changed my life. I continue to learn, and I know I'm never done learning. But my story started when I was really young. Um, I was born, <laughs> born in the 70s in Calgary, and uh, I came out quite yellow, and uh, was put on an electric beach for two hours. And uh, my parents were so excited that I was there, They my mom ripped out the IVs and ran across to the keg to get drunk and celebrate my, my birth. And uh, Wait, she took you with her? Yeah, oh, it, she, she didn't. She was thrilled to have me in an incubator for two weeks. Gotcha. And uh, she went back to work in that, in that spell as well. Mm. Um, so how did my parents feel when I was born? They were, they were elated, for sure. They took out a half-page color ad in the Calgary Herald. It was amazing. Um, but I knew that I was on my own mm. in a lot of ways, and, and I was. Um, feeling different and lonely, dad left at three and moved to a different city. He went down to Arizona and then ended up in Vancouver. My first memory as a child, which I gathered um, from much therapy as I got older, was dad packing up and leaving. And I didn't see him for, for a long time. Um, I think I was, I was very sad about that. I was very confused as a child. I also had some feelings that I didn't figure out until my 20s um, that I was different. Um, I couldn't quite get a handle on school. Kindergarten uh, was a problem. Um, I couldn't do things like other children. I couldn't manage. I couldn't, if you gave me a picture of a rabbit sitting in front of a bush and you asked me to cut out the rabbit, I, I couldn't do that. I had, uh, you know, some serious motor skill dysfunction and um, I looked a little different too. I was a little scrawny and I certainly looked like a boy. Uh, so my nickname became Tomboy Tannis at a very, very young age. I was beat up a lot. I was bullied a lot, mm. a lot, a lot, a lot. And, and when I say that, it wasn't just pushing and shoving. It was, it was bloody, mm. black and blue, constant. Because um, I looked bullying different. gets brutal. Yeah. Like, some kids are brutal. Yeah, it was rough. 
It was rough. I grew up in a really fancy neighborhood in Calgary. Mm. Um, had a lot of privileges, which was a blessing. My stepdad came into the picture. We bought a great big house. And, and um, I was in sports to try to keep me out of trouble. And uh, it worked until I found alcohol at... Uh, between the ages of 9 and 12, I can't exactly remember. I mean, I know the first time I got wasted and got fully addicted, but I know I started drinking hard alcohol at the age of 9. Um, but at 12 years old, a dear friend of mine, may she rest in peace, uh, grabbed a bunch of airplane bottles, and we went down to the basement and sat over the toilet and started drinking them and would throw up, and we'd laugh and giggle and continue to drink. And mm. uh, she's since passed of an overdose, mm. um, you know, and, and uh, I carried on like that because alcohol was my answer. It's the way all the adults around me knew how to have fun. It's, it was the normal thing, whether it was morning, noon, or night, there was roadies in the car. Everything we did revolved around alcohol, whether it was in the house or whether it was on the golf course or whatever we were doing, travel especially. Um, and, you know, through my problems in elementary school, I was taken to many psychiatrists and psychologists, many people to try and diagnose what was wrong with me. And, and my parents just kept coming back and saying, you're just lazy. You know, you're just not applying yourself. Um, <clears throat> so after getting expelled from, from quite a few private schools in Calgary for drinking while, uh, while in school, um, I, I found my child psychologist who started to do EMDR with me, which was an incredible form of hypnotherapy. And it really works. However, what it does is it brings up past repressed memories and then you can work through them and then mm -hmm. apparently they're gone. Um, so in theory, that's in the idea theory. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And, and however, was I ever being honest about my alcoholism with anybody? No, it was mm -hmm. no secret, but I don't think anybody knew that I was drinking every moment I could. Mm -hmm. Um, so at this point now I'm, I'm 15, 16, I'm going through a lot of tragic deaths. Um, my surrogate uncle killed himself and a father figure of mine passed of cancer all in the same few months. And I was just, I was feeling really awful, really broken, mm. really unloved. And again, alcohol and the friends that surrounded alcohol was really all I could manage, right? Mm. It was, it was, it was the answer. And, and also I was dealing drugs and um, uh, having a great deal of fun doing that, making a lot of money. So I just, I felt really invincible behind addiction. Mm. Um, the catch with me is I didn't get away with anything. I actually got caught for everything, but there was no consequence. So um, dealing drugs to underage kids who would end up getting caught at their schools, um, super convenient that their uncle was the superintendent of the mm. schools, for example. Um, as I was put in jail for um, drugs and having uh, guns and knives in the house with fights happening, um, the police chief was a dear friend of the family. Mm. Um, so, you know... I think my addiction got worse and worse because although I was constantly in trouble, I literally hadn't had any real slaps on the wrist. Um, when I was 18, I was in grade 12, I was expelled about a month before graduation for drinking on a school bus. Apparently mm. they don't like that. Um, <laughs> and somehow I got back in and saying that I had to apologize in front of the school and not drink at my graduation. That was the deal. So I could take the limo to the petroleum club and all that, but I wasn't allowed to drink because I'd apologized and, you know, there was obviously a problem there. Um, I decided I was going to drink and I did. And unfortunately, my grandmother, who was active in, in dementia at that time, found out I was drinking and uh, ended up giving me quite a 
quite a few knocks to the face, a couple of black eyes at my mm. graduation wow. at the Petroleum Club. And I just, I just felt like life was swallowing me up. I knew something was wrong with me. I didn't know what. I was different. I didn't know what. Um, I couldn't drink enough to get me drunk enough on a regular basis. So I decided I was going to run away. I jumped in a car and I went out to BC to a, a person I knew had a cabin who I could get into and whatever. I was by myself, I don't know, I think about four days. I didn't eat and I just drank. I drank, I drank, I drank a lot. And all of a sudden I got this aha moment that my stepdad was dying. He was going to die of cancer that minute and I have to get back to Calgary. But I know I'm drunk, so I'm going to drive back to Calgary, but I'm going to just, I'm not going to go one kilometer over the speed limit. I'm going to be super safe. I'm only going to take one bottle of vodka with me, and it's going to be fine, right? <laughs> Everything's going to be good. And it Well was, laid plans. I thought so. You know, yeah. it made perfect sense. It was like, <laughs> I got this. You know, so I'm in my 1990 red little jelly bean Miata. It wasn't Ooh, mine, of course. It was Miata. a friend of mine's, but I'd... I'd driven it a lot, you know, governor was gone, <coughs> and uh, she was fast. Anyway, everything was going great until I entered the Canmore area, and a black 5.0 Mustang, I'm sorry, it was actually dark gray, decided we were going to race. And it was just too tempting. <laughs> so uh, double clutched into second, and off we went, and I was clocked at about 210 going through Canmore kilometers an hour, and at this point I didn't know I was being chased by a helicopter and by RCMP, but they mm -hmm. were way back because they couldn't catch us. And we were both on the shoulders passing traffic, and I tried to get back into traffic and I hit gravel. Mm -hmm. And um, the Mustang was never caught and never seen again, but uh, I hit the ditch, let's put that the nicest way possible. And out of nowhere, and I mean that, out of nowhere, this old car pulled up. It was like a dine and dash. It was a rusted old 1970 something big, right? Pulled up right next to the car in the ditch and said, are you alive? I said, yes. And they grabbed all the empty alcohol from the car and took off. Wow. No concept of where or how that happened. Uh, the police were on me pretty quick and I blew 3.4. Wow. So 3.4, people would be like, I don't believe you. It's like, well, I've got the paperwork to prove it, not that I want to show anybody, no. but I literally had been drunk for years, but for four days straight, hadn't eaten a thing yeah. and had drank copious amounts of alcohol. You could have gone um, blind, eh, from like, oh, yeah. like all kinds of shit could have happened, yeah. Oh, it was wow. incredible. And I was fine. I mean, you That's know, huge, yeah. obviously head, like, you know, bumps on the head, yeah. whatever. Um, but, you know, um, off they took me to the Canmore jail, and... Uh, they took pity on me for a bit until my ego got in the way because, you know, my concept was I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to get a slap on the wrist here. Nothing's going to happen to me. The police chief's a dear friend of mine, you know. And my arrogance ensued, and it, it, it makes me blush to even say that because it was, just, it was just gross. You know, I was 18, and that's how I was acting. And uh, with all 14 charges I had against me, uh, very few of them did end up sticking. I had a very good lawyer. And... Uh, Evidently, some pages went missing from the police report. Mm. I don't know how that happened. At any rate, um, you know, $2,500 fine, had to go to anger management, and uh, they made me go to this thing called AA. And I was like, what is this? And they gave me a, a date, a time, and an address. And it was what is now the Sheldon Schumer. Mm. And uh, I walked in there, and I remember I had a huge chip on my shoulder. Man, I was angry. Everything was everybody else's fault. I was furious that I had to be there. I'm sure there's better things I could have been doing. And I'll never forget that room as it was, and I'll never forget the people in it because they were so warm and so welcoming. 
and so respectful and so nice. And, and, and I was a complete asshole. There's just no question. I mean, I was just, you know, um, and I rolled my eyes uh, throughout the whole meeting. Um, I didn't take anything seriously, but I was there and I got the signature, right, on the piece of paper. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I lost my license twice more for driving without a license. Uh, each time, once again, thank you, higher power, or whatever you want to call it, they didn't make me blow. I don't know why, because <laughs> um, I was not sober. Um, but I was fully honest. I would say, oh, this car's stolen and I don't have a license. Like, I would just say that mm -hmm. the two times I got caught. Um, but, you know, I was happy riding my bike. Cool, man. I, I've got a bicycle. Like, I'm good. <laughs> you know? That's right. Um, I was busy. I was in sales now. I was doing well. Uh, I, was, I was in Dale Carnegie sales training, which I loved. They take a genuine interest in other people, right? I was really good at sales. Big personality. Loved it. Uh, I was in marketing things. I was, I was on the, the committee downtown for the uh, 1999 celebrations, Millennium Party in Calgary and this and that with all these bigwig people and always, you know, into something with business. And I, I, again, I thought I had life handled. Um, I was the secretary of the Chick Wagon, which was in Calgary for over 11 years, started by Arlene Flock, and it was an incredible organization for charity. So I got to in, involved in the Rangeland Derby a lot at the Stampede and whatnot. Mm. So that put us in the barns for 10 days during Stampede, which if anybody is an alcoholic actively in Calgary, those 10 days are the best 10 days <laughs> on earth because, you know, drinking never stops. It That's is right. so normalized. It is so much fun. And it's just, it's literally a party. And I did that for, for a lot of years. And I was in the parade riding horses where I was in the parade dressed as a chick. Or I was, you know, it was... It was hysterical, like I was doing all these things, nothing could touch me, you know? Um, but there was something still nagging at me, something still wasn't right. And this one day, I went to work and I was fighting with a coworker who I really disliked, and my boss looked at us and said, would the two of you stop fighting and give each other a hug? And we looked at each other and both of us at the same time did a big smile at her and gave each other a huge hug. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> what are those? Wait, does that feel like love? Yeah. Gross. Whoa. Yeah. Like, whoa. Oh, man. And a light bulb went on. Like, Holy good gravy. I'm gay. I mean, it just came to me. It was a lightning mm. bolt. And it was like, oh, my God. Like, I'm myself. I felt thousands of pounds lifted off of me. You know, it was, it was beautiful. It was who I was. I felt comfortable. Um, I can't even tell you. And I literally thought my problems were over mm -hmm. because my problem was that I didn't know, you know, that I was gay. Certainly couldn't be alcohol or drugs. Mm -hmm. No way. So life carried on. And of course, it, it didn't get any easier. <laughs> In fact, it got a little bit worse. Um, so fast forward many years, I drank uh, really hard. Um, I was into Coors Light as my drug of choice, which is indifferent because when nobody was looking, I was adding amaretto and, and tequila to it. And I loved Oxys and Percocets a lot and would drink morning, noon and night um, and, and drive and work. And I was functional. I knew I was an alcoholic. I was never in denial of that. It's However, insane yeah. what we can do. Oh, exactly. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Because as you're talking, I'm like remembering and just like, holy fuck, man, we're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and the fact that, oh, thank God. Thank you. Mm -hmm. God, I never hurt anybody. Um, 
But then um, these weird things started happening. I was busy in sales and I was, I, I was not sleeping. And I, I couldn't really explain it, but there was a whole lot of like things going on in my basement. There was all these noises. I lived in my basement. My ex-wife lived upstairs. We had a very awful separate relationship. And there was these lasers that kept like going in my room. So obviously the neighbors were having parties, right? And there was these mm. red lasers and there was, you know, this, 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 these men would come down and like check the basement because again, the neighbors must've been partying and it was like the CIA. It was really mm. frustrating and I wasn't sleeping. So I'd go to work at like 3 a.m. And I'd go to 7-Eleven and have like really bizarre conversations with people at 7-Eleven at 3 a.m. as I was drinking my average six liters of Diet Coke a day. Mm. So it was Diet Coke or Coors Light. Um, and people around me were going, you know, you seem really exhausted. You should go on a holiday. You know, you just, something's not, not right. Meanwhile, you know, behind the scenes, I think people were going, uh-oh, right? Mm. Now, I sold flags. I sold signage. I sold banners. I, I, was, I, I loved it. I was in the signage industry. And this song came on the radio that was called Waving Flag. And the guy had written it for me. And that's why it was playing on the radio. And I was like, wow, this is spectacular. So there was all these kind of things happening. But you know what? You're right. I do need a holiday. Hmm. So my aunt and I decided we were going to drive her beautiful, beautiful, mint condition, uh, 86, I believe, Tornado, from Palm Springs to Vancouver. Now, what I didn't know at the time um, was that I was a raging alcoholic <laughs> and that the DTs could happen really fast. Hmm. So when I got down to Palm Springs, I was asked to be the DD the first night I was there. And I did that. The next day we jumped in the car to head to uh, an area called kind of like just outside of San Francisco, Danville, and spend a night with my stepsister where, um, again, there's all these weird things happening. She had lasers and, and CIA agents around her house too, mm. but that's because it was for sale. Mm. Okay. So, you know, it was kind of weird, but finally we got to San Francisco and we were spending a night at this really shady, but yet very famous motel. And as we're walking around the Bay Area, there must be a convention in town because there's all these famous people. There's Glenn Klaus, there's uh, David Letterman, you know, there's all of these famous people and they're gathering in every single bar that we went into. Now we kept going into bars because I was just looking for some Coors Light. I was quite desperate actually to have mm. some Coors Light, but they didn't have any Coors Light. All they had were these fancy beers, but they were so fancy they tasted funny. But again, there was all these famous people. So we kept going to all these different bars. Finally, I said to my aunt, I said, let's just go back to the motel. They must have beer. So we finally went back to the motel, and I found that they had Corona, but they were closing, and they only had six Corona left. That was all the beer they had. Oh, my goodness. So I ordered all six. She went to bed. And again, things you know in San Francisco were heavy. So there was a storm coming in, and these sirens started going off in the city because it started raining. Now, I didn't know San Francisco did that. It's like mm -hmm. this alarm goes off in the whole city when it starts torrential rain but because I of all knew, the hills and stuff like that I guess so I'm imagining yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so then I kind of I started piecing things together I, I went and searched through my aunt's luggage and there was nothing in it she'd brought all this luggage and there was no clothes in it so she was a danger to me there was something wrong hmm. um, so you know I was quite panicked so I went to the night audit person at the motel and I was like you know there's, there's some really serious stuff going on here and I'm on my Blackberry at the time and I'm trying to phone all these people to get help because you know my aunt is, is not well there's something wrong and nobody was answering but if they were they were they were really out of it like mm. they couldn't piece together a conversation because it was the middle of the night it's like three or four in the morning 
So that was really weird. At any rate, I finally decided that I should call the police because this was just heavy. This mm. was just too much for me. So I called Sounds the police. Sounds like psychosis, but yeah. I for those of you police. out there, it does sound like psychosis. Yeah, it does sound like that. <laughs> I called the police. The police came, and they thought the situation was pretty bizarre too. Mm. At this point, my aunt is awake and is going, wow, you know, I'm out of here. Takes the keys to the tornado. She's gone. She's like, see you later, kid. Have a nice life was the mm. last word she said to me, and I don't blame her. Wow. Um, at this point, my, my dear friend lived in Ronert Park, and I called her and her husband. She was nine months pregnant that day. And I said, you know, I've been abandoned here at this shady, I need some help. Can you come get me? They came and got me, and I said, let's go to the, there's a point to this story. It's a little bit long, but it's interesting. Uh, let's go to the airport and try to get me home, mm. right? I went to the airport, and by the way, I have three huge pieces of luggage because I was bringing luggage home for my parents. So I have huge, like literally three huge roller bags. And I walk into the San Francisco airport and my friend and her husband are with me. And again, she's nine months pregnant. And she keeps saying to me, come stay with us, please, Tannis, come stay with us. Just come home with us right now. And I'm like, no, you guys are having a baby. Like, no, no, you know, I'm going to go home. I went up to the Air Canada ticket booth and I tried to book a ticket and the guy started screaming at me. What did you do? Did you break the law? Did you murder somebody? Why do you want to get home on a one-way ticket? Are you even from Calgary? And I was terrified. I was like, what is going on? Oh my God. I took these three pieces of luggage and I ran. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. I ran out of the airport and I ended up on a shuttle to a motel. I checked into this motel and I figured out what was going on. My stepdad had invented Facebook to spy on me mm. because he was the head of the CIA. And my iPod was a bomb. Mm. So I started calling the police nonstop and they kept sending military police to the door. And it would be one person in blue camo and one person in green camo and their guns were huge, but they weren't able to help me because they weren't the police, they were military police. It was very frustrating. Mm. By the third time that I called the police, and everybody I knew evidently, one of the police officers came in and looked around the room. There was no alcohol to be found, by the mm -hmm. way. I hadn't been drinking this day, and I'd only found maybe 11 or 12 beers the day before, right? And I had no alcohol in the room. It was vitamin water because I'd decided to quit drinking Diet Coke. Somebody looked and went, I think we need to call an ambulance. My resting heart rate was too. They really took them a minute to figure it out? Took them hours and hours, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Hours. hours and hours. My resting heart rate was 220. Mm. Sitting still for an hour, my resting heart rate was 220. And wow. people could only piece together so much, mm -hmm. right? You know, the, the, I think they figured out that the iPod wasn't a bomb. Never did get it back. At any rate, you know, what an irony that I was moments away from the biggest psychiatric hospital in the U.S. called the Mills Peninsula. Hospital. I was just going to say that. They have a pretty big hospital there. Yeah, the biggest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So off I went. And I don't know how long I was locked in there. It was about $90,000 worth. I had to mortgage my house to get out. Wow. Um, wow. But the psychosis that I was in for months mm. and months and months had come to breaking point. And my memories of that time in the psych ward, what I did, um, only some of them were backed up when my partner at the time and my parents begrudgingly finally arrived mm. days later. 
um, to tell me some of the stories because they were able to go in and, and watch me. It's a teaching mm. ward. So there was teachers, you know, or sorry, practicum students all over the place as I was cleaning up the room that mm -hmm. I was in, cleaning up the whole place, straightening the magazines, right, doing my OCD throughout the whole place because it was filthy and this needs to be managed. Mm. Um, one funny story I had in there was uh, I was brilliant enough to bring my passport and my cigarettes with me when I was put in the ambulance. And I went up to the desk as soon as I was unmedicated enough to walk, which I don't know how many days that was, and I said, are you allowed to like go out for a cigarette? And she's like, oh, we have a smoking room. And I said, okay, and she handed me my cigarettes. No lighter. I go into this little room, it's maybe four foot by six foot, all glass, and I'm standing in there and there's a box on the wall. And this stainless steel box has a hole in it. And on the side of it, there's a button. And I'm like, all right, I got this. Put my smoke in, pressed the button and sucked on it until it lit. Well, I am not kidding you, about 40 people came in the room because nobody had figured out how to light a cigarette. <laughs> using that <thing. laughs> so all of a sudden every person you in the saved ward, lives that day i did yeah you i did. did we were all like hey can i butt fuck can i butt fuck can i butt like literally I, yeah. the whole time was just spent lighting cigarettes so four by six room there had to have been 40 of us in there i'm not kidding you apparently i i gave <laughs> away my house traded for some important papers uh that were related to you know the wow. Tao Te ching at any rate um what do you think i said when i was asked if i was a drinker you know no yeah on occasion, you know, sometimes. Um, and the only goal was to get me back to Canada, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Canadian citizen, and this was costing a lot of money. But how am I going to get on a plane if my iPod is a bomb? Very concerning. And there was no way that they were going to put me in a car for the, you know, 24-hour drive. So I was heavily medicated, and that's an understatement. I was on, I think, 12 different antipsychotics, sleeping pills, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I ended up getting on the plane and getting back to Calgary. don't remember any of those many days. I don't actually remember much after that until I ended up at the Foothills Hospital, outpatient early psychosis. Mm. And once again, they're doing a check. So, you know, first of all, do you have benefits? Yes? Oh, excellent. Mm. We're going to prescribe you more of this, more of this, <laughs> more of this, more of this. You need to sleep for a year. You need to do nothing <laughs> but sleep for a year, Tannis, because your brain is it's so exhausting. broken. Yeah. Right. Your neurons stopped connecting. They stopped even touching each other. Mm -hmm. You are broken. So, you know, that's your only thing. And I'm like, okay, cool, whatever, mm -hmm. right? Off I go, drinking more than I ever have. But now it's a little awkward because I'm on all these antipsychotics. I'm gaining weight, like literally five pounds a day. I'm not kidding you. I was 210 pounds within a matter of three months. Wow. And I Some of those meds are heavy for that. Oh, yeah. brutal, the side yeah. effects. And the side yeah. effects, I couldn't look at a toothbrush without throwing up. I mean, no. you know, my alcoholism was so active, I was constantly throwing up anyway, but I would just keep mm. drinking. This was a little different. So, you know, I did find that Oxy and Percocet really helped <laughs> during mm -hmm. this time. <laughs> that countered a lot of it. And now it was, you know, hard alcohol mostly and you know, a little bit of beer. Um, at any rate, I, my stepfather, and, and God bless him, saw me and looked at me and went, no, like this can't, this can't be, you know. Um, and he went to my doctors, my nurses, and, and all of the psychiatrists that I had at the foothills behind my back and said, are you aware she is a raging alcoholic? Mm. And they were like, uh? <laughs> <laughs> she checked off, she doesn't drink. Yeah, I can't <laughs> believe it. I'm just shocked. It was never even considered. 
I mean, I think it was considered at the Mills Peninsula that it was alcoholic psychosis mm. because I, by the way, just two weeks ago found my health file mm. by some miracle because I was looking for a file folder for something for our meeting. And I pulled out a file and it said Tannis' health and I went, what's this? I hadn't seen it in 12 years. Mm. Yeah. And I thumbed through it and all of a sudden I saw the ticket I bought for Air Canada to Calgary. I saw all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Crazy. At any rate, um, the point is, is they went and called me in and said, okay, it's the pro- part of the program now where we do all of these things. We're going to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this test. You know, CAT scan, MRI, blah, 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 you name it. Mm. Oh, okay, cool. But a month later, they called me in. I, I arrived at the office and I sat there for a good two to three hours. Like I'm in the waiting room for two to three hours. I have better things to do. I'm paying for parking. I was mortified. I walked into this office and there were six humans standing behind a desk and the look on their faces was just awestruck. And I sat down and with my ego the size of the Foothills Hospital, I said, what's up? (laughs) And they said, you will be dead in less than a year. Your liver is six times its normal size. Your enzymes are over 600 and you already have serious cirrhosis on Mm. both sides of your liver. You're 32, you will be dead in less than a year Mm. if you don't stop drinking. And I shrugged my shoulders and went, cool, thanks guys, Mm. (laughs) you know, have a good day. That was April. I didn't get sober till July. And in that time, I proceeded to hit my, as we call it, our rock bottoms. Um, And I almost drank myself to death, literally still working, still doing whatever I thought I was doing, still functioning to some degree. And at the time, my partner packed up finally, had had enough, and left. And I went, yes, party time! And I brought out all the big guns. I had a huge shaker, went rafting, the bow, um, just was like so relieved to be out of a relationship because that was holding me back. Life's too much fun for this. And way too much fun for way that. too much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that night, literally, after finishing like two forties of tequila, not myself, but like a lot of it was me, in my beer with beer garitas, um, and waking up with numerous men in my house, in my bed, you name it, all over the place. I was so sick. I was in so much pain. I I felt dead, although mm. I woke up. And I knew I didn't want to die. That's all I knew. I didn't know anything else. I was so gone. My brain was so broken. But I knew I didn't want to die. And I quickly sent my partner at the time an email and said, I'll never drink again. That's basically all it said. And she wrote back in a matter of minutes, I'll be home in an hour. I went, oh, fuck the house. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't. I haven't. Mm, Right on. Since that day. Um, But the story story just begins there, in, in a sense, because... I DT'd in my basement, not smart. I didn't know enough about alcoholism. I didn't know you could die from that. And I almost did. I had no idea. That was, that was a horrible time. But I took the, the seven days and I trained spotting, uh, did it. And that was it. Um, my stepdad said, I'll send you to Gucci rehab if you need it. Um, I don't think you'll be able to manage any of the government assisted ones. So if you need to go to Betty Ford, I'll, I'll manage it. And I said, no, I got this, I'm good. I went to a psychiatrist who handed me a whole bunch of pamphlets which I thought was really helpful. <laughs> and I went on my way because I said, you know what? I'm sober and that's it. Life mm. is going to be perfect. And it wasn't. Go figure. For five years, I was a super active dry drunk. I got angry and a- angrier at everybody else. Um, 
I couldn't really manage things, although now I had a successful business of my own and life was expanding on the outside looking in, it was collapsing on the inside looking out. Mm. And at five years, almost to date, I had a complete, what I know now as a codependent nervous breakdown. And I woke up one day and my hands were shaking like that and I couldn't stop them. Mm. It didn't matter what I did. I started having panic attacks. I didn't know what panic attacks were. I had no idea how scary they were. I had no idea that you think you're going to die. Mm -hmm. You literally think you're going to die. I had no idea. And I was in contact with my godfather and his wife on a regular basis, and I had um, Dolly Parton tickets, like six row, four seats to Dolly Parton, who's an idol of mine. But I couldn't do it. Something was wrong with me. So I went to the Sheldon Schumer, and I said, I need help. And they said, well, you can give away your cell phone, and we can put you on a 30-day psych hold but you can't communicate with anybody. Mm. They said, or you can take these pamphlets. And I went, oh, more pamphlets. Of course, I'm way too important to be locked up without my cell phone, but yet I need to disappear. And so I did, I ran away. I was a, an adult and I ran away and I hid, ironically in my own business, which nobody thought to look for me there, but in fairness, brilliant, <laughs> in the bathroom because there was cameras in the business, didn't want anybody to see me. So in the bathroom, which was like two feet by four feet, on the floor, shaking uncontrollably, not knowing what to do. And my godfather's wife texted me and said, where are you sitting? You know, we're at the concert. And I said, I'm not doing very well, I didn't go. And she said, you need to come see us tomorrow. I went, okay. I knew she was in recovery, I knew, but I didn't know much. I knew she'd been in recovery for a long time. I remember going for dinner with her where she would ask my godfather to taste all her drinks when they'd arrive at the table if she had a Caesar or whatever, and I, I noticed that. Right? I looked at that and went, huh, I wonder what that's like. But I had no desire to drink, interestingly enough, which was what people thought I'd done. I'd run away to get drunk, mm -hmm. right? It didn't even cross my mind because it was so broken. I went out to see them the next day and they said, you need to go to treatment. They said, you're not well, you need help. And I went, well, can you smoke cigarettes there? <laughs> that was my first question. Because, <laughs> you know, it's still my, my only vice. And you could. It was called the Meadows in Wickenburg, Arizona. And it's second to only one in Germany in the world. Hmm. It is an exceptional place. And when I got off the plane in Phoenix and I got into the limo to take me the two hours to Wickenburg, I haven't slept like that in, I, I hadn't slept like that in probably 15 years. Hmm. Because I knew I was safe. I knew I was going to learn what was wrong with me. I knew I was going to have a life-changing uh, time, and I did. Because that first evening, I walked into, consciously, my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And I had so many aha moments at that meeting. It was like a spiritual awakening mm. in my first. I mean, we were reading page 554. We were reading about resentments. We were reading about blaming others. We were sharing on you know, these people that are saying like, this, nobody, nobody forced it down my throat. Mm -hmm. You know, I was hearing stories. And as I stayed down there for quite a while, um, I learned, I learned about CODA. I spent a lot of time in Codependency Anonymous. And I learned about how I just, I, I focused all my time on trying to fix everybody else because everybody else was the problem. Mm -hmm. And I had never turned that high powered perception on myself, not once. And I realized what an asshole I had been my whole life, literally. And I dove into the program headfirst and, and stayed in it and stayed with it. And, you know, the 12 steps were beautiful. Um, I got my sponsor down there and stayed in contact with her. Unfortunately, she passed away. Um, 
of a relapse. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, thank you. She was an incredible woman. Right on. I adored her. Um, but through this journey, I recognized what I can do, which is be calm, cool, collected, lead by example, be of service, be completely at peace, and not be surrounded by chaos, all of which I caused, the chaos and negativity, while repairing relationships, which took years. I, I'm, I'm, what, 11 years sober, and I'm still making amends. I'll be mm -hmm. making amends for the rest of my life. Um, it's a slow process because I have a lot to make. And I had torn my family apart. Um, Single-handedly, that sounds egotistical, but I mean it. I, I was so immature and so um, angry that, you know, I would pit people against each other and I would just, I, I, I tore everybody apart. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I have worked on, on building that and our family is now all getting along. Um, they're all coming to my wedding in August. Um, it's, it's incredible. You know, it's, 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 like, it's like a miracle, but it's a process. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a long process. It's a slow process. And I love it because there's no end to solutions. There's no end to the ability to have the tools to use. Mm -hmm. There's no end to the learning and the people that you can help. And, and I, I wouldn't turn my back on it for a minute because I think it was partially my calling, um, but mainly um, the thing that makes me feel most at peace, mm -hmm. <clears throat> which is knowing I get to wake up, I get to do my prayers, I get to do my gratitudes, I get to let let go, let God. I get to have this amazing fellowship of people that are the most unique people I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, us group of drunks are incredible. We're amazing. You know, there's there's just no end to it. We so, are some strange fuckers. No doubt. Yeah. And strange fuckers that would never normally mix, and that's so right? true. Yeah, it's it? pretty awesome. It is. Yeah. And so the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has, has given me um, just purpose in general. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So anyway, that's... That's my story. Right on. Well, thank yeah. you, Janice. Thanks for taking the taking the lead on that. And now we turn to stare at Heather. Yeah. Heather. Yeah. Take it away. Thank you, David. <laughs> You're thank welcome. you, Janice. I love you so much. Oh, I love you. I'm too. so glad to be your friend. Me too. And David, I look forward to working with you and spending time with you and developing this friendship. Mm -hmm, me too. Because we are people who would not normally mix when we do. Fireworks happen. Mm -hmm. Things occur. Amazing things. And I'm always impressed. That's, sure. That's why I keep coming back. Yeah. Um, so it, it's funny how many things Tannis and I have in common. Um, my mother was also an alcoholic. My father was an Anglican minister. And um, mom got sober in 1970. So I knew about recovery, but we missed each other like two freight trains in the night. Mm. And she put down and I picked up. And so I was busy. Um, I felt really guilty about my drinking and using drugs um, because I got sober at 27 and everybody I'd been to school with or knew in my younger life had it all together, mm -hmm. I thought, with two kids and the picket fence and all that. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I had a slummy apartment in a neighborhood you wouldn't feel safe in. And, you know, <laughs> and uh, I mean, what's wrong with me? Why am I such a wreck? And my sponsor t said to me, you had to become alcoholic first. Mm -hmm. Now you have a life. And that was 1987. 
-hmm. So that's why I know this works is because it worked for me. Yeah. And I watched you. I watched all these other people in recovery go to college and create a family and mm -hmm. have a career that I was jealous of. And I was like, I want that. I want mm -hmm. a life. Um, so anyway, mom got sober in 1970. I joined Alateen because that's what teenagers do, I guess. Um, I was bullied again in junior high. Um, took up smoking cigarettes because that seemed to put me with the in crowd. Mm -hmm. And uh, my first drug of choice was marijuana because it was easier to get than liquor. And mm -hmm. when I was a kid, and I'm 64 this summer, when I was a kid, they had checks for getting liquor. They, you know, they wanted to see, you know, your resume kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I could get pot anywhere. It was easy. So, um, and it worked for me. Um, I ran, I met two girls in my new neighborhood. I moved, we, I moved around quite a bit. I'm not a one person, one town, one person. Um, we lived mostly on the east coast of the U.S., in the Caribbean. So at this point, we're near Washington, D.C., and I meet this girl who's crying outside her apartment building, and I went over and I talked to her, and uh, she and I became very good friends, lovers, in fact, and her best buddy, she and I, the three of us, used to drink together, and we would get stupid, me walking drunk, because among the three of us, only June's father had liquor. Mm. So we would put it all in one bottle you know that. Ugh. God. What do you call that? Swamp water or whatever? Yeah. Same, yeah. same. Oh, Ooh. bad stuff. Shudder. <laughs> and so we were, and we were all vomiters. We were criers. We would fight with each other, but it was tight. You know, we were buddies. I love that. We were all vomiters, criers. <laughs> we loved each other like. A... <gasps> yeah, not pretty. Well, and and part of it was that. Um, the girl that I had fallen for was being beaten by her parents. So I thought I'd, I would steal her away mm. and make her life beautiful. And so we hitchhiked about 300 miles away and stayed at my old summer camp. And it was beautiful. We had a whole week together. We were living on bacon and, you know, potato chips. And then we got picked up by the police. And we were separated by her parents because I was a bad influence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Okay. But I took on that moniker. I, I, I felt com really comfortable in the savior role. Pesky popo. <laughs> you know, but we, big bag of weed, I'm good to go, right? Yeah. Hi. Um, finished high school. I only saw that young lady one more time because she vacationed where I finished high school and I was madly in love with her. Mm. And I said, I said, oh, can, you, can we come together again? And she said, no, no, I've joined the church. I am, you know, this is my life now. And four months later, she was dead behind the wheel of a car. Mm. Um, she drove into an 18-wheeler, alcohol was involved, and she was 17. And that's... That's my future, if I pick up again. That's mm -hmm. kind of how I feel about the way I drank, because yeah. we drank together. And among the three of us, none of us drink anymore. Dora died behind the wheel of a car. June married a man from the old country of Iran mm -hmm. and moved home to live there 
that's where she lives now uh, with a flock of children and her mother-in-law and she doesn't drink either and I, I got sober. Mm -hmm. Of the three options, I like mine best. Mm -hmm. um, so I moved in with my dad. We, had, uh, we were a blended family and the day after I finished high school, we went sailing for a year. My dad bought an old sailboat out of the New York Times and we worked on it for two years. We were five teenagers. I don't know how he did it. But, wow. Yeah, right? Yeah. Holy. Um, and so he was by we, himself? Sorry? He was by himself? Uh, his, his second wife had three mm. kids and oh. then there's me and my little brother. So there was gotcha. five teenagers. Holy. Yeah, I, I don't know how he did it. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so we went sailing down the east, up and down the east coast and then over to the Bahamas for six months and then came back to America. And I got a job as a governess for a 10-year-old, a guy we met in the Bahamas who needed somebody. My father said, here, take my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and he did that a couple of times. <laughs> my, my first paying job was, a, was as cook aboard a sailboat. I was 16. Okay. And sure. how did you get that job? Your dad was at the dock and Here, said, take, take my daughter. Yeah, she's available. Go get her. <laughs> she needs a job. That was a good summer. That was summer 76 in New York Harbor. Wow. And, yeah, and which is the age of sail. And right, this was the beginning of the tall ships. Anyway. Mm. Um, so we went. Um, I, I flew with this guy up to uh, Vermont and tended his daughter for the summer. But he was an architect with more money than Christ. And he uh, was from Guatemala and would go home a couple times a year and pick up product and come back to America. And I had some of the finest cocaine in the planet that summer. Mm. And I know now that it might have saved my life because as an addictive personality, I will take everything that's on the table. And I became a snob. And a couple of years later, somebody offers me some cocaine. I think, awesome, you know, I take it in the bathroom, use it all up. And they come out, I come out and they go, where is it? I said, it's gone. They're like, what? It's $300 worth of cocaine. I was like, whatever it is, it's shit. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what it's cut with, but this is shit. Give me a drink. Yeah. And that's when my drinking really took mm. off. Because all of a sudden I realized liquor would always work for me. The other things, I mean, they had Paraquat. That was back in the days of Paraquat with the bad marijuana mm -hmm. sprayed with something and this lousy cocaine, and I didn't like the hallucinogenics. And I had I met two young ladies that uh, died of heroin overdoses on the street. One was pregnant. And mm -hmm. I went, we're not doing that. Yeah. Um, and again, I became a snob, and I think it might have saved my life. So now I'm dedicated as a drinker. Just sign me up and write my life away. Um, the next thing that saved my bacon was pregnancy. I fell in love with a sweet young man and who was also bisexual, so that worked for both of us. And uh, I had his son, and so I was abstinent during the pregnancy and during nursing, but that first Mother's Day, mm. I was working in a little diner in upstate New York called the Double Deuce Diner. The double deuce. Double deuce, baby. <laughs> and the owner went away to pick up her son somewhere and left me in charge of the restaurant. And I worked 11 to 7, then I'd go home. She said, stay open as long as you can. I'm sure there'll be some people that come over for breakfast on Mother's Day. Well, the place was jammed. Mm. 
mm. and bananas. And so at 10 o'clock, I said, that's it. we got to shut the doors. And I look over one table of five young people, and I said, can I have your check, please? And they said, we haven't eaten. The place is a, a, just a monument, just a mess. Mm. And I said, okay, look, here's the deal. I'll make you anything you want if you help me clean up. They said, we got some beer in the car, a couple of bottles. Do you mind if we go get them? I'm like, awesome. <laughs> I haven't had a drink in over 18 months. And I felt better right away. <laughs> <laughs> now I was supposed to go to dinner, Mother's Day, right? After a nap, and I didn't make it. I was still in the bar when it closed at 2 a.m. Mm. And that was, and Jimmy was not happy. Um, but that's how I drank. It was like, okay, I can do a little period of abstinence, but this is what happens when I go back to it. Mm. I could never drink as much as I wanted, as often as I wanted, because I didn't have a lot of money. But I would drink as much as I could, as often as I could. Mm. Um, Jimmy was bleeding. He was drinking. We were together seven years, and he had obviously some liver dysfunction because he bled and um, went into treatment once with me on the outside, him on the inside, and uh, got locked up a couple times for DUI. And I finally took him home to New York to his mother. We were out in California and Utah. And, mm -hmm. um, took him home to his mother, and she said, what do you want me to do with him? I said, well, you got to dry him out for one. But beyond that, I don't know what you want to do. And he was dead in 13 months. At age 34, and he was six foot four, and weighed 113 pounds, and he had the encephalitis of the brain wow. and the ascites of the belly and his yeah. cirrhosis of his liver, and he bled to death from an esophageal bleed, wow. which is one of the options. Yeah, um, I didn't believe it. I was like, he's not going to die. He's, mm -hmm. he's dead. Um, so now I'm a 12-month parent of a five-year-old, and I had moved back down to Washington, and it took almost two years for me to get sober. Mm. And what happened was, Wesley was gonna have a birthday, his seventh birthday, and I'd had kind of a crisis in February, went to one or two of these meetings they have. I didn't like it at all. These weird places. Oh, these people. <laughs> They're just such holy rollers coming out. And so, and I knew that wasn't cut for me. You and, found your way into a cult is what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I understand there's a lot of them. But, so in the end of May, um, I'm a basketball fan, and my team had just won. My son was with my father in Baltimore, and but now I'd been to a few meetings, and things started to sink in. <clears throat> Jimmy'd been dead since October, and um, I said, "Okay, let's go party." And I had a car, I had an apartment. I was doing better than I'd done in years, and now I have a head full of the fellowship and the program, and not really the program, but at least what is the options, mm -hmm. some of the, the beautiful results of 12-step work were in front of me, and I had mm -hmm. evidence that this was real. Um, and I was sitting in the parking lot of Bullfeathers in Alexandria, and I 
put the key out of the ignition. And my next thought was, I cannot predict what's going to happen if I start drinking seriously tonight or where I'm going to end up. Mm. And the next, thing I did, then the next thing that came to me was, there's a meeting at the club at 11.30. And I put the key back in the ignition and I drove back down GW Parkway and went to the Serenity Club where I've been going to meetings once in a while. And uh, it was an honesty meeting <laughs> in the dark with the candles. And nobody knew that I'd had a couple of beverages that night. And so the next day is my sobriety day. Um, it took about six weeks for all the wheels to fall off. Um, and I'm, I'm, I get violent. I get angry. I hurt things. I hurt people. I break things. And um, that's how I felt. I was going to kill mm. something. And I break teeth. And this guy that I'd asked to move in, because he had a job. <laughs> said, you mean you were in love? No. <laughs> Give me the kidding. money, baby. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm so and I, I, he said to me very calmly, he said, when was the last time you went to a meeting? I'm like, oh, I don't know, last week sometimes. He said, go ahead, I'll watch the boy, you go ahead. And um, I met a young lady there to be, who would, I, I picked her to be my sponsor. And within three days, she gave me to her sponsor. Hmm. Now I got a real, like a professional, somebody who's actually done the steps and is involved with the traditions and has a task in AA and... Hmm. I was, I would never have picked her. She wore a lot of pink. She drove a Cadillac. <laughs> she danced from the beginning. These ridiculous dances, beginning to end, and I was. <laughs> she was very good with me, though. She mm -hmm. didn't tell me about what she did on Sunday mornings. You know, I, I can't put up with that kind of thing. You need to keep it open for me. Mm -hmm. And she was good. She talked about the the broad highway of the fellowship and how we walk side by side. There's no single file here. That's, that's another program. Okay. Um, that's a different show entirely. I, I think yeah. so. Yeah. I do. Um, so I had pretty well talked my way out of using any drugs right away, but I kept a stash for about six months of some really good indica that I had. I'm sorry, I'm not, no, in case this AA thing or this fellowship thing doesn't work, mm -hmm. I want some backup. And after six months of not drinking and going to meetings and doing the steps, I felt better. Mm -hmm. Like really bona fide felt better. And I gave it away. I did not dump it down the toilet because I'm sorry, that was $40 worth of good pot. <laughs> I get it. Right? And so I gave it to somebody who would take good care of it. You can make a friend with that kind of weed, right? I, uh, such friends I have. That's right. <laughs> so, um, but what had happened between May and Christmas of 87 was I fell in love with the fellowship. I realized that they had something I wanted and mm. I desperately needed. And it was more than anything I could fathom. We talked about a higher power and I said, yeah, okay, I got issues with that. And they said, but one of, my, one of my dear friends would say, God is big. And you put her in a big room and you get an echo. Mm. And I was like, yeah, that's what I need. I need somebody big enough to fix this because mm -hmm. I'm a train wreck. <laughs> so that was, that's like all the, the spiritual definition part of it I've done. 
is I need something big enough to take care of me. Mm. And it's interesting. I just watched The Whale last night. Mm. Okay, I haven't seen it yet. It's on my list. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, he really was. And so... So I think of big, and I think of I think mm. of the image of him right now, but um, so step three was starting at my first AA convention mm-hmm. in Richmond, Virginia, in August of '87, and the first speaker was a guy from Saskatchewan named Cecil, and Cecil talked about being a skid row bum in Toronto, and he looked like a millionaire. And it was like, what are you talking about? You look great. Mm -hmm. And I realized something had happened to him. Okay. The Saturday night speaker was a young woman my age who was 15 years sober, got sober as a young teenager. Mm -hmm. And she talked about that amazing fourth step. Thank God for the fourth step. And I was like, huh? That's not what I'm hearing at home. That's what, why, what is Thank this? Thank God I get to relive all my shit. <laughs> right? We've been yeah. trying to forget this stuff. And so, but I'm sitting with my sponsor and a couple of the ladies from my groups, and what is she talking about? She said, you're interested, are you? Yeah, this is good. We'll talk, we'll talk about it. She said, go find the third step prayer. Okay, fine. Um, and she said a number of other things. If you ever get a chance to listen to June G., um, I think she might have passed by now, mm. but what, a, what an amazing story. Anyway, um, and Sunday morning, we had a dance Saturday night. Sunday morning, um, we go to the, the last meeting, and the leader says, we found this little purple earring on the dance floor. If it's yours, come get it. And it was mine, and you impressed me. You impressed me because I would have stolen it. I would have pocketed it, some pretty bright, shiny thing on the floor, you betcha. And you turned it in. I was like, oh, oh, you guys are all right. You're practicing what you preach. You're Mm -hmm. not a hypocrite. And I, okay, I think I'm in. So what happened between the first week of August and right after Labor Day was I learned the third step prayer and I began to feel a little insulation Mm -hmm. that I had some breathing room and I was able to catch my breath, pause, because I heard about pause when agitated or doubtful, and it gave me the space to do step four, which absolutely saved my bacon and put my my emotional life in some kind of a context. It can be powerful shit. Oh, it's yeah. powerful shit. Yeah. Now, I had scared therapists. I had, a, <laughs> I had, had a couple of professionals try to look at me, and I wouldn't give them a good picture, mm-hmm. and... Um, so I was always dodging and, and evading questions and that kind of thing, but I would always scare them. It was a lot of fun. You work with somebody for 45 minutes or so and their eyes get really big and they kind of back up in their chair and they're like, damn. And, uh, I'd walk out of there going, that was fun. <laughs> so I'm thinking. Traumatizing okay, your therapist. Oh, they've not been out of academia. What do they know, right? I've lived an old life, you know? So. Now I'm with my sponsor in her house, and she's laying on the couch, and I'm in the chair, and I'm talk, talk, talking, the drugs and the money and the guns, and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get this little <laughs> from the couch. I had put an AA member to sleep. And I went, oh, 
maybe I am just a garden variety alcoholic. <laughs> oh, maybe I'm not special. One of <laughs> us. <laughs> oh, let the curtains open, you know. So, um, and within uh, within a few weeks, I was I'd written my list because I already had it from step four, step eight, and began making amends. The second one was much better than the first one. I went to that young lady's parents, the one who died behind the wheel of the car, and I wanted to apologize to them for being a bad influence on their daughter. And I ended up crying like a boob all the way through it. And I called my sponsor. I said, if this is what making amends is all about, I can't do it. It's terrible. She said, honey, please call me before you go. Just take a minute. We'll role play. We'll act it out. We'll do whatever you want to do. But you don't have to go in cold like that. Mm. Oh, okay. There's a lot of moments like that, you know, which way did he go, George? Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I've learned. But that being teachable mm -hmm. has absolutely saved me. And I realize I know that I don't know. Oh, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I have moved a lot in sobriety. My first move out of that, the, the slummy apartment, I, it, so I was one of the only white people in that apartment complex. And uh, one of my best buddies was from North Carolina, and she and I would sit down and drink coffee together. I wasn't drinking at this point. And uh, so I'm getting ready to move. Place is all packed up. And I, so I go to Mary's house, and good to see you, honey. I'm going. And she said, girl, you know why you never had any trouble around here? What? And I'm like, no, nah, I'm a nice person. People don't hassle me. She says, we all thought you were crazy. <laughs> Don't mess with that white woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, you hurt my feelings. <laughs> but I get it. You hurt my feelings and I get it. <laughs> exactly. And, and fortunately, I'd done a few steps between there yeah. and there. So I, it wasn't too far. Oh, oh, that's really how people perceive me. Um, so my first move, um, I'm intergu interviewing a, interviewing groups and uh, I go to an 11-step meeting, and there's BMWs in the parking lot and guys in suits, and it's a very nice suburban meeting. And uh, I raise my hand to share, which is how you do it there. And the leader calls on me, and I know everything about the 11-step. I'm two years sober. I got this. And I open my mouth, and, and I start cry, cry, crying, crying, crying. Because I know the neighbor, neighborhood and then need some phone numbers. <laughs> they all landed on me like a whole bunch of bugs. You know? it was, but I didn't even know I felt bad. Mm -hmm. I knew I was kind of stirred up, but I didn't know how far I was. Mm -hmm. And that's that thing really about self-awareness that we begin to work on as we stop drinking. Mm -hmm. We begin to be present in our body and... So yeah, that was, I was like, wow, that's really how I feel. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't join that group. I went down the street and joined another group because I'd made a fool of myself that night. So I thought, as I'm so important. Um, and, and you walked around thinking everybody was thinking about it? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. oh wait, that's right. Yeah. So Friday night was a, a large meeting that had three different rooms of meetings. That's how big it was. And so I get there, and I really like the meeting, so I've offered to be the coffee maker, which means you're there in an hour and a half beforehand mm -hmm. because it was a big coffee pot. And so I'm sitting outside, it's summer evening, and this young lady walks up, and she says, Hi there, I heard you speak during a meeting. Can, can you be my sponsor? 
I'm like, sure. First one, first mm -hmm. one. I was so excited. But she was uh, goth. She dressed in black with the white makeup and dyed mm -hmm. her hair and bound her breasts and no external presence at all. And uh, during that year when I sponsored her before I moved again, the, that same August conference came around again. And um, I have a picture of her in my mind of this beautiful woman with brown hair and this lovely dress and these amazing breasts. <laughs> Just because she wasn't bound anymore. Mm -hmm. But she had gone through I the I can steps. appreciate breasts. All right, very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> she had gone through the steps and things that happened for her that were not in my experience. Um, she was in a different religion, uh, different in circumstances altogether. But look what the fellowship did for her. Mm. And I haven't had near that much trouble. The opportunities for me opened up in that sponsorship. Uh, I moved out west. I lived out west in Utah for many years. And um, I, enjoyed, I got involved in service work. My sponsor used to carry the grapevine. And so when I was in Utah, seven, eight, nine years sober, I served on panel 42 and 43 as grapevine chair for the Area 69. And I loved it. I absolutely loved being able to travel in AA. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with AA all over again in a new place. Mm -hmm. um, I met a sweet young thing and uh, <laughs> came to Canada. <laughs> so I've been in Canada now since the turn of the millennia mm -hmm. and um, got my citizenship. Uh, been out in the Maritimes mostly for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Just moved out to Calgary last year. Um, in the Maritimes in Nova Scotia, my home group met on the Greenwood military base. Mm -hmm. And my guys were all SARTEX officers, brilliant, sober guys. They all mm -hmm. got sober in Lahr, Germany, where the Canadian forces had a recovery program for them, and it was a year long, yeah. and so they were well-tended. And these guys were my age in sobriety, about mm -hmm. 20 years sober. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. And then I took a job. Um, oh, we had a little campground and restaurant in Nova Scotia, and I put a sign up on the, on the wall behind the uh, cash register, I'm a friend of Bill W. And the locals would come in and say, Am I a friend of Bill's too? <laughs> and I'd say, I don't know. Do you know the code? <laughs> and I'd say, no, I don't know the code. Tell me the code. I said, I can't break the code. Yeah. And they'd walk away frustrated. But any tourist who walked yeah. in would go, hi there, I'm a friend of Bill's. Like, awesome, I'm a friend of Bill's. <laughs> so that was it, was, it created more fellowship. Mm -hmm. So uh, we shut down the business after 9-11, uh, a couple years after 9-11. And we were starving in the dark. And I took a job for a, a sailing vessel um, to Europe. And so we pulled into Africa, into Sierra Leone. And there was um, 700 black men, specifically, in dashikis. And one guy in a relish uniform. He says, hi, I'm Pat. I'm from Halifax. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Come on aboard, right? So. 
I fell in with the Canadian forces in a, an entirely different manner than I had with my home group. And so I came home from Africa, let's join, let's do this. And so I went to the gym, right? mm -hmm. <laughs> which is what you gotta do. And within a year, I was at basic training at age 50 with 20 years of sobriety under my belt. Wow. Right. That's what I said. <laughs> okay, good, let's go. But it was that thing, I don't know what I'm capable of. Mm -hmm. You know, look what I'm capable of doing now. I didn't know then. I didn't know where I was going when I came to the fellowship. So what business of it of mine now where I'm going now? Mm -hmm. Just stay the course. So um, I go to basic training in Saint-Jean-Richelieu, and there's a local Francophone group that brings an AA meeting in every Friday night for any of the recruits that want it. So I had my own personal meeting. It was awesome. And these lovely people all spoke enough English so that I could get it. And uh, that was the only meeting I, I was able to go to. I didn't have a car or anything. But I realized that I can do this. I can, I can be sober in a drinking environment, which is kind of normal for the military, mm -hmm. and use my head and what I've already got in my back pocket with the fellowship and my recovery. And so I served for 10 years. It was amazing. I would do it again. I would still be doing mm -hmm. it if I'm not such an old lady. <laughs> well done. Mm -hmm. it, it, I didn't, I'm not, wasn't infantry. I wasn't artillery. I wasn't carrying around a, a you know, a rocket you launcher. You still went through boot camp at 50. It was wonderful. Yeah. It really was. Um, and they took such good care of me. But you taught me how to take care of myself first. Mm -hmm. To recognize when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or in pain and participate in everything I do. And sometimes all I had was just my little grapevine. Mm -hmm. And I'd sit there and read that for half an hour before bed and rest in peace, mm -hmm. which is something I never did when I was younger and drinking because it was always about panic and crisis and chaos. And, and now it's mm -hmm. like, I am retired now. I'm a retired lady. Um, I fell in love with another sweet young thing. The, that sweet young thing that I came up to Canada for uh, died four years ago today. Oh, wow. Yeah, today's I'm the so anniversary sorry. of her loss. Oh, rest in peace. Yeah, well, that's, it's the other uh, recovery disease, which is smoking. Mm -hmm. And she died of uh, COPD. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I thought it was kind of fortuitous that I get a chance, because we, we met at an AA function, right? Mm -hmm. um, and... So I was on my own for about 18 months, and then I met another sweet young thing. And Tannis knows her, and, mm. and my life is gorgeous again. They're the cutest ever. Just Isn't saying. she, though? Yeah. And this, it's... it's. You have a thing for sweet young things. I do, I do. <laughs> I do. Check those boxes. That's right. I have... Uh, and I'm privileged, because this is a... I've only previously ever fell in, fallen in love with other alcoholics. Mm -hmm. And this one is not of that ilk. She is a, a regular person. And so I've had to learn a new language, basically. And what benefits? It's mm -hmm. amazing. I, I, I was telling you guys, we just came, I just came from this lovely little party this afternoon up at the penthouse mm -hmm. with these nice people that want my company. And if you've ever been asked to leave, young lady, because you didn't behave properly, you barf in places like plants. <laughs> <laughs> Peeing in elevators. You drive too fast, all that stuff, right? <laughs> and to be invited 
anywhere for me. I, I so kiss the ground I walk on mm -hmm. because you help me change my attitude so that people want me. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a privilege I never thought I was worthy of, and the truth is I am. Mm -hmm. And I, when I got sober, there was a movie. We are not worthy, Bill and Ted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, but that was my, my mantra. That's how I felt. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know now I am, and so is everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it just clears a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I look forward to doing more participation because mm -hmm. life is good. It is pretty good. So thank you both for sharing your stories. And there is another element to this that I'll just that we can touch on just before we, we finish up. I don't know how long we've been going for, but I don't want to keep you all night. Um, but we are starting a meeting, mm -hmm. right? And now I say we only in the sense that I happen to be a part of it, but not really the big part of it. And it's, it's called the Grapevine Meeting, right? That's what we're calling it? Well, it's Live and Let Live. Live and Let Live, that's what it is was. The name, yeah, that's the name of our, our meeting, and, and that's what we want to live on, as mm -hmm. hopefully one day we can turn it into a group. Yeah. And it goes around for many, 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 many years and outlives us, would be the goal, Yeah. ultimately. Um, but yes, Live and Let Live is the meeting, and it is a grapevine study. That's, what, that's right. I knew it was, Live and Let Live is such a good name. When, we, when I was driving down to meet you two at the church down there, yeah. um, I was thinking about the name Live and Let Live and just how that's kind of how I try to live my life in general with other people, right? Just to let them do what they got to do. And yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm so, and I'm so grateful to be a part of it with you two, even though you have done most of the work. I, I am 100% yeah, thanks, able Dave, to say really, that. Thanks, so much. It's been yeah. great. <laughs> it has been great. You've both been doing all the work, <laughs> no. and I just get to have you on and talk shit. So <laughs> it's kind of what I'm good at. <laughs> so this, uh, this is the grapevine we're going to start with, mm -hmm. and it's from August of 2020, and it's called Sober and Out. Sober and out, okay. So because this will be a gay and lesbian focused AA mm -hmm. meeting, that's there's only one other meeting in all of Calgary. And I don't know how many in the province of Alberta, but I know in the Maritimes we had one meeting in Halifax. Mm. And for a, LGBTQ. For LGBTQ yeah. specific. Sorry, two S plus. And right. that's not to say that everyone can't come because yeah. it is an open meeting. Of course. But the idea being that some people are, have some inhibition about referencing their sweetheart who happens to be of the same sex mm -hmm. or an interest in that mm -hmm. life or that something they've dreamt about and, mm -hmm. and want to talk about. And it absolutely has a huge impact on our psyche, our internalized homophobia. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't come out till I was 35 mm -hmm. because I'm... I mean, I may have been sleeping with girls, but I wasn't going to talk about it. Yeah. And what happens now is that we have a chance to incorporate a spiritual life and the life personally that we is true to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and that's and that is exactly why I wanted to be involved was because I came out in my twenties, but I I also lived straight passing for a long time and took advantage of that, right? Like, and, and so, and part of it, not the whole of it, nobody did anything necessarily to me in the program, but part of it was because it was so 
misogynistic and homophobic in the program mm -hmm. when I came in that I just decided to stay hidden, right? Um, until probably two years, last couple of years, I've been more and more out and open um, because I just couldn't do it anymore. As, as you both probably have had your own experience with that, just not being able to handle it anymore, where it's like, you know what? I gotta just be me anyway, like regardless of what I'm used to with the old AA, right? Because when I came in, it was, and it still is there. And, and I've noticed, thankfully, there is a shift, right? There's more and more openness in just a general meeting. But I am a huge proponent of us having our own space too. Um, even though, of course, anyone's welcome. Yes, definitely. But All inclusive. I, I want to be able to feel, like you said, I want to be able to feel comfortable if I'm dating a man to talk about that, right? And I wouldn't feel comfortable with that in my home group. I'll be honest, I just wouldn't. I might in time, because I'll be honest, since my dad passed away, I don't give a fuck as much, so I probably will talk about my boyfriend in an open meeting, should that ever occur, right? But that wouldn't be something I would have done a couple years ago. You know, um, I would have, at uh, even at um, the one at Hillhurst, the, the LGBTQ, the only AA meeting. Front runners. Front Sorry, runners, there. thank you yeah. very much. Um, even there, I was very quiet, right? Because it's just, it was one of those things where I was convinced that if certain people found out when I was new, it just would have like been a con condemnation, right? Instead of acceptance. Because that's kind of, well, I mean, we, we all sensed our own environments, right? Whether they were safe or not. And mine just wasn't, you know? My family was safe, um, but that was it, as far as I was concerned, mm -hmm. right? And so this, when you, when you were talking about this meeting, I just was, I wanted so, so much to be involved, even though I live in the north and you both, this is down south, uh, I just, I want to be involved because I know what, it, what it's like to sit in those rooms as a man who's queer and wonder, is there anybody in here I can talk to? Mm -hmm. Right, like, um, and and so, and I know I'm not alone. So, any more than you two would be alone in your experiences, right? We. So, one thing that happened in Virginia in 1987 at my fifth step mm -hmm. was I told my sponsor about wanting to sleep with girls, having slept with girls in the past. This is what I really enjoy. My sponsor said to me, "Now that you're sober, you don't have to do that anymore." Mm -hmm. verbatim yeah. and I went back to her a few years later I said you realize what you've done mm -hmm. just be aware uh, I was going to roll my truck mm -hmm. I was like I'm sorry we're out of here and then a little voice came to me and said wait wait there's more mm -hmm. so but I went back to Virginia and I took her to lunch and I said okay this is what's going on with me and she said well I have something to tell you too mm -hmm. <laughs> Was she a sweet young thing and she was in she love was with you? She was not, no, oh, but her okay. husband was. Oh. And he'd, she'd been sharing her husband with her, his lover for the previous 20 years. Oh, my goodness. And she was sure that the love of a good woman would bring him around. Yeah. And I went, oh, okay, please don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to kill some people. Yeah. Right. So, but I haven't heard we that We already story, have a though. hard enough time surviving, let alone extra stuff. Oh. <gasps> Yeah. yeah, that was, I haven't heard anybody else tell that kind of a story, yeah. but it happened to me and I don't, 
Well, my experience growing up was like, um, your dad was a minister. Uh-huh. Yeah, mine too. Uh-huh. Um, and so my experience growing up, I was talking to Tannis a little bit beforehand, um, just about when it was, when we were Methodist, it was much different, mm-hmm. right? But when dad changed to United, it became this more open, um, I think for him too, like when he came back to Canada from the States, he switched from Methodism to, to United and it was more open for him. But I still remember not necessarily him saying anything, but it was always the people around you, right? Like just talking in, in those general ways about, oh my goodness, did you hear about so-and-so's son? Yeah, so-and-so's son was gay. Oh my goodness, he tried to kill himself. Yeah, it must be because he's gay he tried to kill himself. Like exactly. it couldn't be because his parents were grinding him into the dirt or whatever, not parents maybe, but, but those were all the conversations that I remember. Um, I don't even know where they happened, most of them, right? But it was like that, if he was just more faithful, God will provide him with a woman, right? Like, or if she was just more faithful, right? She just needs the love of a good man, right? Right? And and maybe start a family. I can't even imagine what women get inundated with, right? I mean, I know for myself, growing up in the church and, and being around, like, but by the time I was... In high school, I was pretty used to hiding, like mm-hmm. by attraction to men, because by at that point, all I'd ever gotten into was trouble for it. Like I, you know, just bullshit after bullshit. Every time I sh- showed I was attracted to a boy or a, a man, as I got older, um, but it's just so the rooms were very closed off when I first came in, and I'm really glad they're not. I guess that was the whole point of that rambling bullshit there. <laughs> <laughs> Makes to, good sense to me, little brother. Yeah, thank you very much. No. To get to get back on that, that point of I just I don't think there's enough, right? For for us. I don't think there is. And I know there's probably Alberta proud people that would wager there's too much for us already, but um <laughs> there's just not, right? There's not enough we until we're like able to just be right and not have to worry about it at all there's just not enough you know i have a quick story to tell you about please do stop me to... from talking god damn no, it no 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 i love listening to you um you have to blurp that gd out there damn it karen and i went down to las vegas to go to the ncaa men's basketball tournament last month oh wow it was awesome i was going to say how to go obviously oh. awesome so we had, and I went to a gay and lesbian meeting while I was there, and it was brilliant. And I'm, and I have the T-shirt. Thank you very much. You got <laughs> <laughs> but we took her eldest grandson, who's th- 17 and plays ball in Regina, and um, Karen went to go play a game, and I took the boy down to the pool to go hang out at the pool in the sunshine. Feels good, right? And so he's in the hot tub with a half a dozen college students, and he's a senior in high school, right? And so I'm, just, I'm sitting there reading my book, no big deal. And, but the guys are laughing and having a good time. And, and I came over and I said, you know, I'm about ready to go. He says, yeah, well, I think we're about done here. We're pretty well cooked like lobsters anyway. So mm. um, this is my grandma, Heather. And so thank, nice to meet you. So we go to the ball game that night. And there's Josh out by the kiosk. He's talking to all these college students again. And Karen walks up and says, is everything okay? Right? She's, she's kind of mama bear, right? And she's, he says, oh, yeah, this is my grandma. He said, 
no, 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 no. We met your grandma. <laughs> 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 no, yeah. no, this is my other grandma. Yeah. <laughs> the kids get it. Yeah, they do. They do. And yeah. these, I mean, these guys are between 25 and 18, you yeah. know? I'm like, this is how it should be. I love it. So it's coming. Yeah. I know. And I'm so grateful. And I know I didn't even suffer as much as some many people suffer. Like, but I did, you know, in all fairness to those, all of us, like I did survive suicide attempts, like, like so many of my friends, right. And probably many of your friends. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's the, that's usually where we go, mm -hmm. you know, like, unless we can, yeah, unless we can find ourselves in there. And so thank you both so much. And for both of you being open and out always, um, I just really appreciate you coming in. Thank 